0: Uh, and I can say with confidence that um, this sermon today is going to be the best sermon you've heard at grace all year. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Wow, that went over way better than I was expecting. You' all so great. Thank you. Thank you.) Uh, But uh, in in, uh, all seriousness, of course, gathering together and and hearing from God's word is going to be beneficial no matter what. So let's pray as we approach the scriptures. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. As we approach a new uh, book, a new series, it can be really beneficial to gain some sort of orientation and context as to what it is we're looking at. Um, So first off, what are we reading? That's a great question. What genre, what are we looking at? We have the beginning, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. We must be reading what? A letter, excellent. That's great to have that in mind. Okay, a letter implies an author and recipients. So who is writing? It tells us. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now this is written by Paul. You'll see in the, in the letter, it's not we sort of language, like Paul and Timothy, it's I language. This is Paul writing. Um, he, he mentions Timothy. It's very likely Timothy has met the Philippians Um, And also later in the letter, you'll see he wants to send Timothy to them. And so by bringing Timothy into this in the beginning, he's saying, yes, my my assistant, my partner, Timothy, is giving him some credit, um, some status as he's going to come to them eventually. So lending a little bit of authority. Um, But Paul is the author here. And Paul, as you may remember, was a Jewish man, Uh, also a Roman citizen, and he spent much of his early life persecuting Christians. And then he had a striking conversion when Jesus appeared to him. Post-resurrection, post-ascension, Jesus appears to Paul, and he's converted. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9, if you'd like some more detail into that account. But following that, he changed... His whole life and uh, spent his entire life devoted to missionary work and planning churches and spreading the gospel of Jesus. And he's writing here, as you may have picked up in verse 7, he says he is in prison. So he's writing this letter from prison. Where exactly is debated, that matters less than just knowing from the outset this letter is being written from prison. That's going to come up. Um, as we look at this over the next several weeks. So that's that's the author. Who are the recipients to the saints at Philippi? Philippi is ancient Greek city, a Macedonian city. This is not a letter to the Philippines. Just want to make sure that's very clear because it hasn't always been This is to a place called Philippi. And for those of you who are map people, it's your lucky day. We have a map here that will be up behind me that will help you locate Philippi. Um, You see its relationship to Greece and to Athens um, on the Aegean Sea. It was a very important city, strategic, um, not only to the sea, but it was also located on the I-40 of the ancient world, the Via Ignatia. And so this was huge for commerce or for military or for whatever. Um, So you had lots of folks traveling through here. And it was so strategic for these reasons um, and resource rich that Rome made it a Roman colony. So that would mean that they would enjoy the same sorts of status as Rome itself. They were under Roman government, Roman rule, and they enjoyed Roman citizenship. That afforded them um, a lot of privileges, um, access to certain things, um, and it was something they were very, very proud of. This was um, a Rome away from Rome, if you will. And so what came with that were very Roman things. In fact, estimates are about 40% of Philippi was Roman, as opposed to maybe roughly 60% Greek. So you have the kind of the Hellenistic culture, but laid over top of that is this Roman, thick Roman icing, <laughs> if you will, okay? So we were talking architecture, dress, even language, Latin speaking folks, um, as well as Greek-speaking folks and others. And this would also affect um, the religion, the spirituality of the area. Rome was not just satisfied with, okay, you can have citizenship, we'll check in on you, and that's that. At the top of Rome was the emperor, was Caesar, Caesar. And Caesar was to be worshiped as God. And so with all of this Roman stuff is the Roman, what's called the imperial cult, the worship system of Caesar. And so you can imagine a place that's almost half Roman, many of whom retired military from Rome as well. You can imagine the worship song through the streets would be Curios Kaiser. Caesar is Lord. That's a very different cry than what you'll read throughout Philippians, what Paul is calling the Philippian church to. File that away, um, that this kind of cultural uh, context is really significant. It gives you a little bit of nuance into the letter to understand Paul's writing to this particular people, what he might say to the Philippians um, that he didn't say to the Galatians or how he words certain things. It's helpful context for us. A small analogy I was sort of rolling around in my mind was like, if you're walking through Winston-Salem, and you've got the mall, you've got neighborhoods, and you have, uh, you know, streets and stores and restaurants, et cetera, suburban, southern town, and then you come to brick gates that say Philippi. Wake Forest University. <laughs> and you walk onto the campus, and now suddenly the architecture's a little bit grander. It's uniform. There are colors everywhere, black and gold. You come to the arena, and the pillars, and the banners, and all these people who are also wearing black and gold, and statues of important people, like some very strange-looking man they call the Demon Deacon and they're wearing black and gold, and they all seem to know the same song. And there are people who are milling about the loyal subjects that have credentials on this little card that gives them access to food and to buildings and to people and to knowledge and education. Maybe it's a little bit silly, but when you're on the campus of Wake Forest or any other university, you know where you are they're very clear about that. When you walk onto the soil of Philippi, from our adjoining region of Macedonia, you know where you are, and more importantly, you know whose you are. You belong to Rome, and your allegiance and your commitment is to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. That is the place where... Paul walked into. It's the people that he's writing to. So welcome to Philippi. Get your glasses on. Okay? So you might expect in reading a letter, we know who's written written it, who they're writing to. Now you might have the question, what is this going to be like? What's their relationship? Is this going to be like Galatians? Greetings, grace and peace. You fools! Who's deceived you? No. Uh, Is this going to be like Romans? A theological masterpiece laying out justification and sanctification. What's it going to be like? How does Paul feel about these people? How do they feel about him? The first thing we read in the body of this letter, I thank God every time I remember you, always in every prayer for all of you, I make it with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So there's a clear partnership. Um, Paul is very fond of these people. One aspect of this partnership, again, context to help us, we're told um, in other parts of Scripture that when Paul was in Corinth preaching, he was there in large part because of support that comes from the brothers of Macedonia, is what it says. Very likely this is from Philippians who have sent funds so Paul can preach in Corinth. Later in this letter, he he talks about their support they've given financially uh, when he was in Thessalonica, and then again as he is in prison. They have committed in some way to this man and his message, Um, but it's, it's even more than just here we'll give you a few dollars and we'll see you in the spring, did you catch the intimacy of this relationship as we continued in the letter. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. You're partakers with me of grace in my imprisonment, defense, and confirmation of the gospel. God is my witness. I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. There is an intimacy between Paul and the Philippians. It's much more than a partnership. It's also, in in the Greek language, it's a little bit, um, the nuances of it are such that the part where it says, I hold you in my heart, could equally be rendered, you hold me in your heart. And I sort of like that because Then we have this sort of outdoing one another in love. You hold me in your heart. How do I know that? Because you're partakers with me of grace, first of all, we're believers. Second of all, you're alongside of me in my imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel. But then Paul says, you love me this much, I love you this much. God is my witness. I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Outdoing one another in love. And he swears an oath, you know, God is my witness could be a casual thing we might hear in modern-day American South, but this was a phrase which could end disputes if there was a, an issue, as a debate as to what the answer was. It could be ended often with somebody taking a solemn oath. So this is, make no mistake about it, no debate among you, I know I'm away from you, I know I'm in prison, you have questions about all of that, and I want to come and visit you, I yearn for you, make no mistake. God is my witness. I yearn for you with the same affection of Christ Jesus. As he loves you, his love comes through me to you. That is a strong, strong statement. And one, I think, would be met with great joy and gratitude from the Philippians. It's something we, as an aside, we experience pretty much weekly here. We have our missionaries sending us Updates. They give us uh, prayer requests, they give us praise reports, ways that we could be involved. We send them money, we send them goods. We have a relationship with these people. We hear these updates, just like Paul is writing in this letter. This is a very ancient thing, but it's also a very modern, real thing to us. And when they come here, we hear the same thing. They come up here to give a report or to preach, and they say, We are so glad to be here. We love coming here and getting to see you all. We're so grateful for your partnership in the gospel. It's the very same thing that Paul is is saying here. We're involved in this. We're like a Philippian church. We're the Kernersvillian church, supporting missionaries around the world, and the kingdom of God is growing in part because of the faithful stewardship and partnership of you. Don't let that be lost. They don't just say that because it's a nice thing to say, they mean it. So then the question might be how, how did this close relationship come about? Why, why is there such love between them? Well, fortunately, um, we're afforded a glimpse into that. We're going to take a small detour. Keep your finger in Philippians, but turn back in your Bibles a bit to Acts, chapter 16. Acts follows just after the four Gospels in the New Testament. Chapter 16, Paul has um, been converted. He's been traveling. He gets a vision from God to go to Macedonia. And so, as you all know, when you get a vision from God, you do it. So he goes to Macedonia. In chapter 16, we're going to pick up in verse 11, it says this, uh, Luke is writing this, by the way, so the, the we language is Luke along with Paul and the other companions. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, wrote Acts. He says this, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city Of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come there. Side note there is no synagogue in Philippi. That's where Paul would start common ground there with those folks, a good place to begin begin preaching and reasoning. He doesn't go there. He has to go outside of the city. There not being a synagogue, we could deduce from Jewish custom, there had to be 10 Jewish men in the city to establish a synagogue. So not only is there not a synagogue, there are fewer than 10 Jewish men and it says we came and spoke to the women who had come there. There may not be a Jewish man in Philippi. We don't know. But this is, this is a helpful context. This is a small group of folks who have come outside the city, outside, away from the cry of Caesar is Lord, to go and pray somewhere quiet. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, what? between verses 14 and 15, what, what celebration and joy must there have been? She's paying attention and then, boom, she's baptized her household as well and she urged us saying if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us you know the sort of invitation that just won't be declined no you're coming to my house I'm going to feed you Do you think Lydia may have been on Paul's mind when he wrote to them and prayed for them and gave thanks and joy? A little bit later in Acts 16, we're going to fast forward to verse 25. Paul and Silas get put in prison. This is not the same imprisonment as the letters being written. Just to be clear, this is happening before the letter. But they are in prison for preaching the gospel. You can read about why there uh, later. But in verse 25, it picks up with them in prison. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open... He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. He'd have been killed anyways, if that was the case. 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, don't, don't do it. Do not harm yourself. We are all here. Evidently, something that was said and prayed and sung in that prison compelled these prisoners to follow Paul and Silas's lead because they stayed. And the jailer called for lights, verse 29, rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? No doubt he heard the singing and praying too. They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds he was baptized at once he and all his family then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in god you think that jailer was on paul's mind as he was writing from prison remembering that imprisonment Remembering that time he and Silas were singing and praying, and all the chains fell off? And then they got invited to the jailer's house? These are two of what are probably many stories that the Philippians and Paul could tell. And you see the pattern? Believe in Christ, receive Him. And receive his community. They receive the message of this man. And they receive the man into their homes. And now they're committed to this mission of the gospel. This is transformative for these people. It's not Paul walking in saying, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Y'all get it right. Please. And off he goes. He goes down to the river, speaks face to face with these women, and has relationship with these people, and continues that relationship with them. And their common bond that we read about here, the intimacy of that, is because of their common commitment to Jesus. They've experienced the love of Christ in an irrevocable way, and now they're in it together. And that is also why we're here. We've experienced the mysterious and marvelous love of Christ. And we're in it together. And there's nothing that can substitute for our face-to-face relationships and community. And that community is so beautifully knit in intimate love if there is no substitute for the worship of Jesus if the idols of the culture are pushed away for the clear and singular worship of Christ, that is the foundation upon which the community of brothers and sisters come together and love flows and overflows, which is what we're going to turn to next. So you have this people in a culture which is, clearly vying for their attention and affection every which way, politically polarized, the Christians are minority group, their leader and founder is now in prison, is leaving prison, is in question. Um, What do you do? We finally get correspondence from him. You know, I can imagine the desire of the Philippians could be one for flight Let's just, let's just let these Roman folks do what they gotta do. Things aren't looking good for us and for Paul. Let's get back out to, this, to the river and let's just go pray on our own. Uh, conversely, they may have this fight instinct that says, we're gonna rebel. We're not gonna take no for an answer. We're gonna fight against Rome. But Paul's exhortation to them In verses 9 to 11 is a third way. He says, his prayer is that their love may abound more and more. The way forward is in love. And Paul has experienced the love of the Philippians, as we've just talked about, in their hospitality. How are they to approach going forward in their city, in their neighborhoods, and in their work? Is through love. But just a few words about love. It's not love that is um, abstract, unattached to anything. It says love with all knowledge and discernment. Because love without knowledge and discernment is really powerless. It's really not love. Right? To just march into the city and say love is love and then to exit? What does that do? I mean... Frankly, it's like a, you know, it's like a humanitarian effort online and you hit your like button. Okay, that's love, but directed and doing what? It's faceless, it's amorphous. On the other side, knowledge and discernment without love is cold and often impersonal as well. You know, you say you have a child running down the hallway in some dress shoes that face plants really hard on the floor and comes running to their father, holding their head, crying. This is a completely hypothetical scenario. (laughs) That father could respond with only knowledge and discernment. We learned something today, didn't we? I told you. I knew you didn't. Now you do. That's not very loving. Or you could respond with just love, you know, and just say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I love you. And walk away. That's not helpful either, right? There's a combination in which the knowledge and discernment provide the boundary lines within which love can abound freely and confidently and productively. To to love implies something about the relationship and about the knowledge of good and bad. To love somebody does not mean willing their harm ahead of their good will. We can agree on that. Therefore, how do you know that? How do you discern that? You have to have knowledge of good and evil, knowledge of right from wrong, of healthy and unhealthy. In scripture, this this phrase of knowledge and discernment most often is related mostly to knowledge of God, his will, his attributes, and his word. That is the starting place for this love, to recognize the image bearer for who they are with dignity and to recognize the will of God and the way of God that he has outlined for his people to follow. To have that in your mind is to be able to then love and shepherd people in that direction, which leads to, verse 10, the approving of what is excellent. Those things which are vital, which are the best to to, uh, approve is to search out, to test the hypothesis and to verify this is what is vital. This is what is excellent. Let's go that way to lean people in the most excellent way of Jesus. I sound like Bill and Ted, sorry. <laughs> the most excellent way of Christ. Um, can we edit that later? <laughs> so, that is, that is what is, is being driven at with verse 10, the second half, being pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Purity is a Sincerity a singularity of focus and devotion it's not my allegiance to Subaru or Ford it's not my allegiance to Wake Forest or Belmont University go bruins it's to a king and a kingdom that's the purity and blameless this word blameless is basically don't trip people on their way to jesus For the Philippians to engage and move forward in this work, let's not forget, that was begun by Jesus and is going to see it through to completion. This in-between time work is an abundance of love and it's a love that is founded in God and his word, dignifying neighbors and enemies, loving even them. How is that possible? Well, how does Paul begin? Servants of Christ Jesus. To the saints at Philippi who are in? Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from? Our Father in Christ Jesus. Who's begun a good work in you? Christ Jesus. All of this is through the fruit of righteousness that comes through verse 11. Jesus Christ. Beginning, middle, end. All of this is because of the commitment of Jesus to you. Paul and the Philippians are committed to each other because they've committed to Christ and his message and his mission. And that commitment was not because they woke up on New Year's Day and said, I'm going to start a diet. I'm committed. It's because they apprehended the love of Christ that he is committed to them that he will do it, that he has done it, he is with them. He says to them, I will never leave nor forsake you. I am for you, I am not against you. There will be thriving and flourishing and fruit of righteousness that I will bring out in you. The seed I've planted in you is gonna grow beside beautiful still waters and be fed to be oaks of righteousness, bearing this fruit in your neighborhoods, in your jobs, in your city. I don't care if it says Caesar is Lord all over the place. I am Lord, you know that, I'm committed to you, I'm committed to my kingdom, and you can go forward. In some ways, it feels, it could feel, we're not reading about Philippi, we're reading about Kernersville. There are cultural liturgies all around us vying for our affection and our allegiance and our commitment. But I promise you, they are not committed to you they are committed to their bottom line. Jesus Christ is committed to his children. Is committed to his kingdom. And so yes, this is a Paul uh, this is a letter from Paul to the Philippians. An ancient letter. We need to look at that and study that. Understand that message and apply it to us. It is also God-breathed scripture which is from the Lord to us. And so it just would leave you perhaps, if you need to, the reminder of this invitation to Jesus and his love and his promise to you, perhaps we can hear the words of Philippians through Christ's voice. He might say, I am sure of this. What I began in you, I will bring to completion. It's right for me to feel this way because you are in me and I am in you, partaker with me of grace. I swear myself as my witness how I yearn for you with all of my affection. Come to me and be filled with the abundance of my love. Amen.